You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Morning. You guys ready for a Bible study? Wonderful. Uh, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. Raise your hand and one of our greeters will be happy to hand one to you. It is important that we open up God's word. One, it holds me accountable so that you can see what we're reading. But then two, it's the way that we grow the most is by looking into God's word and applying his word to our life circumstances. Before we get into the text this morning, let me pray one more time and just invite the Lord to be with us. God, thank you that when we open up your word, when we call upon the name of Jesus, you are here in our midst. It is your desire, it is your will to grow us in understanding of your character, of who you are as the creator, of who we are as your creation. And all that you have done for us to bring us into your family. We thank you for this series in Genesis. Building our foundations of the word. So that we can study. Showing ourselves approved. To witness and to be a light to others. So this morning Lord I ask for your spirit to help me rightly divide your scriptures. For I am an imperfect man teaching a perfect word. So, Lord, we ask for your blessing over this time in Jesus name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, if you're new with us, we've been going through the book of Genesis verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, we are just about halfway through Genesis. And uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to the message last week from Pastor Dave, specifically on the story of Abraham and Isaac, I would really encourage you go back, listen to Genesis chapter 22 a phenomenal message about Abraham's faith, his willingness to lay down the thing that he loved the most, his own son, the promised son of the covenant, that he was willing to lay Isaac down on the altar and how God provided for Abraham. This foreshadowing of looking toward Jesus Christ, a powerful message. I really encourage you to listen to it if you haven't yet. But today we're picking up in Genesis chapter 23, and I've titled the message, A Faithful Pilgrimage. A Faithful Pilgrimage. And the reason why is because that's what Abraham is. He's a pilgrim. Uh, When we consider the pilgrims who came from Europe over here to the United States, they were foreigners or strangers in a land. They didn't yet have homes. They didn't yet know what exactly to expect, but they came in a pursuit of religious freedom, a place where they could worship God for the very purpose of growing their faith. And I want to encourage us today as we consider Abraham. Here is a man who left his homeland, the Ur of the Chaldeans, left his family, left his home and followed God's direction. And it really is amazing to consider that Abraham, a man who had so much going for him in his homeland, would be willing to leave all in order to follow the Lord. And this is what we have been asked to do in Jesus Christ, 
to leave all. And that doesn't mean we leave our wives or we leave our husbands or we leave our kids. What it means is we see ourselves as pilgrims, sojourners, foreigners, visitors in a land that is not our permanent home. And we begin in chapter 23, verse 1, which says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Kind of a sad beginning to this chapter. Um, Imagine how long Abraham and Sarah have been married. What an incredible journey together. Most likely they've been married for over a hundred years. How many of you, that sounds wonderful to you. How many of you are like, I'm thankful we're not married in heaven. Don't raise your hand, please. Gets you in trouble. What an amazing marriage for Abraham and Sarah. What a long journey. Uh, When we consider some things about Sarah's life, keep in mind that this was a woman, this was a wife, who when Abraham came to her and said, hey, it's time for us to go. We're going to leave our homeland. We're going to leave our family. We're going to leave our house. And we're going to go live in tents and be sojourners or foreigners in a land that God is calling us to. Abraham had Sarah right by his side. We know that Abraham was an imperfect husband. If you've been going verse by verse with us through Genesis twice, what does Abraham do to Sarah? Says, hey, this is my sister and someone else takes her. And through all of that, Sarah sticks with Abraham. She grows in her faith, waiting patiently for the Lord to bring her a child. And it's not until she's 90 years old, literally barren, that God does a miraculous work in her body and Abraham's body. And both Abraham and Sarah grow in their faith. She gets to spend 37 years watching the promised son Isaac grow. And just imagine if we're reading between the lines, how deeply Abraham would have loved his wife. A wife who is faithful committed, forgiving, worked through hard things with her husband. And after 127 years, her life comes to an end. To give you an idea of how much scripture upholds Sarah in her character, I'm just going to read this for you. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Peter says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Women, this is speaking to you, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves with this character, being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him her Lord, meaning simply uh, her husband, the one that she followed. The Bible upholds Sarah tremendously, says that she has godly character, and Abraham loses his wife. I want to encourage us this morning. A Christian grieves loss with both heartache and hope. A Christian grieves loss with both heartache and hope. 
Now, I want to make something clear. In my own life, I've had loss, but I've never had to endure the loss of a spouse. Some of you in here have, or some of you have lost loved ones recently or close friends over the years. And I want to encourage you that grieving is a good response to the sorrow that death brings. It's a healthy response to the sorrow that death brings. But we grieve differently as Christians because of the hope that we have. And those two things, both heartache and hope, they marry together to create a different kind of grieving process. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, Paul provides some tremendous insight on why we grieve differently. Let's read this all together. We'll be up here on your screens. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I do not want you to be, let's try that again. One loud voice. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest your sorrow as others who have no hope. Uh, No question that when someone dies who's near and dear to us, whom we love tremendously, especially when you consider marriage and spending so much time together in an intimate relationship, of course, if that person dies, it makes sense that people would sorrow with no hope. Because there's no hope for what in this life? For that person coming back. For that person being somehow alive again. But Paul is going to tell us why first in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we do have a hope. Let's read the rest of the verse together. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Uh, This term in the New King James sleep is simply the word for death. And yet sleep is intended here because it is not for eternity. We have a hope that those who die in Christ will be brought back with Christ because he is the first fruits, the firstborn of the resurrection. And there is no question that Abraham is experiencing pain and sorrow. That his loss has affected him tremendously. And yet he has a hope. A hope that he will one day again see his wife Sarah. A hope that this is not the end. Uh, It's interesting to me. So much study, so much psychology has been done on this area of grief. And depending on whether it's five stages or seven stages. It kind of breaks down to this. For a person dying or a person experienced grieving because of the loss of a loved one, the stages are denial and anger and bargaining and depression and acceptance. And those are good to understand because it may help us work through the grieving emotions. But do any of those things provide any kind of hope? They really don't. They help us understand the process of grief but they don't provide a hope. And that is the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the beauty of Abraham having a God who has made a covenant with him to bring him into a different place, to bring him into a different city, not simply on earth, but in heaven. And I want to encourage you, if you're married and you're here today, Do you ever talk about death with your spouse? 
Uh, this may sound morbid, but my wife Jocelyn and I, we actually do one date night a year where we talk about what happens if one of us dies. And uh, that may not sound very fun to you, but here is why I believe that that's important. Death is not something that we grieve like the rest of the world. No question it will impact our hearts and it will cause deep sorrow. But death is not the end for the follower of Jesus Christ. And it is important for us to work with our family members, to talk to them about, hey, if I die, here is how I want to encourage you to move forward, to go on. And this is important because even in Genesis chapter 25, we see that Abraham does what? He remarries. And he has a boatload of children, which is wild to me. We're not going to get into that because that's Genesis 25. So we'll talk about that later. But I have no doubt that Abraham and Sarah talked about what would happen if one of them died. And I want to encourage you, take the time with your spouse or with your family to just talk about death. Be practical about it. What does that look like from a financial perspective? What does that look like from a burial perspective? What does that look like from a remarrying perspective? Because there's nothing worse than a spouse who's left behind that may feel the unnecessary guilt and burden of I'm not allowed to love anybody else because that would be unfaithful to my former spouse. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that that is not true. The grieving process is different for everybody. The timing is different for everybody. There's no rushing through the grieving process. And yet I encourage you to think about death, not out of fear, but to think about death because we have a hope in Christ. Amen. We learn in verse two that Sarah died in a place called Kirjath Arba or known better in a kind of Hebrew geography as a place called Hebron. Uh, Hebron is an incredibly important place within the Bible. Um, not only will Sarah be buried in Hebron, but so will Abraham. And so will Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and Jacob and his wife, Leah. And it becomes a very important place in Old Testament history. Hebron is also the area that Caleb, one of the uh, 12 Israelite spies who go into the land of Canaan, he's one of two with Joshua that are faithful when they finally enter into the promised land, Caleb gets to inherit this area of Hebron. Uh, Hebron is also the place where David first becomes king before he moves his capital to Jerusalem a little while later. So an important place in both Old Testament and then New Testament history. Genesis chapter 23, beginning... In verse 3, then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Uh, some interesting things to note here. Um, Abraham has been weeping and mourning for Sarah, but most likely it hasn't been very long that he has. Uh, in Jewish customs, people are usually buried within about a 24-hour period if they can. That has to do with some climate things. And then also just this well-known fact. 
When you are with somebody and they are alive, you long to be with them. You long to spend time with them. You long to speak to them. You long to be in their presence. But the moment their spirit is gone from their body and there is no life left in that body, you recognize that there's literally nothing left. It's just a shell. You don't long to be with that body any longer because the person you loved is no longer there. And so Abraham weeps and mourns for Sarah, but it says that he gets up. And where does he go? What does it say? Where does he go? To the sons of Heth. Um, These would be the local leaders within the Canaanite territory of Hebron. And it's pretty amazing to me that Abraham doesn't just stay where he is. He doesn't just wallow in his sorrow. And no one would blame him if he did. And yet I want to encourage us, even in our mourning, even in our grief, we must get up and move forward. We cannot stay stuck in that forever. And that does not mean by any means that that memory or that that love or even the heartache that is felt is any less. But it does mean that Abraham has business to attend to. He needs to find a place to be able to bury his wife because he is a visitor and a foreigner in a land, which means he has no what? He has no property. He has no proper place to bury his wife. And so he gets up and he comes to the sons of Heth. Uh, Interesting, Heth means terror. I don't know why they were called the sons of terror. But nevertheless, Abraham comes to the sons of Heth. And notice his posture. Notice how he humbles himself before these men. And this blows me away what he says. He identifies himself in verse 3. Or excuse me, verse 4. He says, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. The reason why this blows my mind so much is because in God's covenant promise, in Genesis chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 15, when God tells Abraham what he's going to do for him, he says, I'm going to give you what land? The land of Canaan as an inheritance, as a promise. And in Genesis 15 specifically, do you know who's listed in all of the peoples that God will help conquer? In order to bring Israel into the promised land. It's the Perizzites. And the Jebusites. And one of those groups is called the Hittites. And that is who Abraham is dealing with. And I don't know about you. But there may have been a temptation for someone like me. To go. Man I'm going to come to these guys. And be like listen. My God has promised that this is going to be my land. So I'm going to do you a favor. Just give me a small piece before you're all wiped out. This is what God told me is going to happen. And yet Abraham doesn't come entitled. Abraham doesn't come with any arrogance or with his chest puffed out. He comes as a grieving husband for his wife. A man who's not looking to capitalize or to play victim in order to get something for himself. But merely to find a piece of property to where he can bury his wife. And he has the character and the faith. This is where we have seen Abraham grow tremendously. Both the character and the faith to take this humble posture and to identify himself as, hey, I'm a foreigner and a visitor in your land. 
I want to encourage you. Like Abraham, we are pilgrims faithfully waiting for our eternal home. We are pilgrims faithfully waiting for our eternal home. The world has a lot to offer us, doesn't it? Try that again. The world has a lot to offer us, doesn't it? It does. Uh, When we consider all the things that many of us have been blessed with, whether it be homes or jobs or success or family or marriages or children or grandchildren, abilities and giftings, wealth to be able to manage no matter how much or how little it is, vacations, fun, enjoyment. The world has a lot to offer. And in those things, there is nothing bad until those things become the primary pursuit of our life. And then we begin to get our priorities mixed up. And it's so easy to happen. Remember, Abraham is not a perfect man, just like we are not perfect men and women. Abraham comes to Egypt. He takes a look at his wife and goes, you are really good looking. They are going to want you, which means I'm going to be a dead man. So I'm going to call you my sister. What is Abraham pursuing? His own self-protection. Valuing his own life, even above his wife's. Putting faith in his own schemes instead of trusting in God. And we see how Abraham has grown. He identifies himself as a foreigner and a visitor. Someone who is not only a foreigner and a visitor in a land that does not belong to him. But more importantly, a man who is looking forward to something greater. To an eternal home. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 9 and 10. I've got it here on your screens. Says this. By faith he, meaning Abraham, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. The heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Uh, The author of Hebrews is making it abundantly clear. Abraham had his sight set where? On the things of heaven and not the things of earth. If you want to take a quick note in your notes, uh, Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. Set your mind on the things above and not the things of earth. This is what Abraham had done with his life. We read again the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. Let's read this all together, one loud voice. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Before we move forward, uh, go back one. Thank you. Uh, Notice that word in the second line. We also eagerly wait. Uh, Waiting is hard, isn't it? Abraham and Sarah knew that waiting was hard. They had been promised this when Abraham was 75. And not until 25 years later do they receive really the first part of the promise, which is Isaac, their son. Waiting is difficult, and yet I want to encourage us. It's in the waiting that we begin to long for Christ more and more. And here's often what happens. You don't have to raise your hand for this, but as we age, how many of your bodies start to hurt? (laughs) 
People are raising their hand. Can't even get my shoulder all the way up. Uh, Our bodies start to hurt or we get sick or we experience financial trouble or we lose people in our life or hardship happens. And it's in the waiting as we go through those things that cause us to what? Look forward to a day when all of that will be removed. When the pain, when the suffering, when the difficulty of life is taken from us and we live in complete abundance and perfection with Christ and the saints. And there's no question that Abraham's grief is causing him more than ever to long for that city with eternal foundations, to long to be in heaven in perfect relationship with the Lord. And I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're hurting physically, emotionally, internally, you're grieving, know that this period of waiting is to grow your faith and longing for what God has promised through his son, Jesus Christ. This is not wasted time. This is not wasted pain. God often uses these things to point us more and more to what we get to look forward to beyond this life. We'll finish this verse off. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Just as God has subdued the entire earth, the entire universe, which includes death, the grave and Satan himself. So we can trust that the resurrection of Christ from the dead will also cause us to rise again. I love that Abraham comes to these sons of Heth, these Hittites. And he doesn't play the victim. He doesn't come and says, hey, my, my wife just died. Can you do me a favor? And again, no one would have faulted him if he did. But he's going to come to these sons of Heth, to the leaders of the city. And as a man, he's going to ask for something that he can pay for. Something that he's willing to invest in. Something that he recognizes he's not entitled to. And again, amazing humility displayed by Abraham, the one who has been given the promise that this land will belong to him and his ancestors. Verse 5. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a what? A mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Um, What an incredible response. And there's a lot to this. It may not seem like it. Actually, chapter 23 may be one of those chapters that we often skim over in order to get to some bigger sections of scripture. But I want you to notice, how did Abraham have this kind of response as a foreigner and visitor of the land? Why would they say, hey, listen, I know you call yourself a foreigner and a visitor, but let me tell you, Abraham, you are a mighty prince of God among us. Yes, this is our land. Yes, we own the cities. But we see the hand of God upon your life. As a matter of fact, we offer to you to choose any burial place within our community and we will give it to you for what? For free. Now, there's a little bit of some ancient customs and bargaining tactics that we're going to talk about in just a little bit. 
But what do you notice about the response of the sons of Heth to Abraham? What kind of response is this? Respectful response. Very generous. Really good, Tony. What else? How do they view Abraham? They honor him. I want you to know something. This is no coincidence. When a man, when a woman says to their children, hey, I need you to do this. You can tell if that child honors the parent by what? By their obedience, because the parent has influence over them. Or how many of us have someone in our life that it doesn't matter what time of day, whether it's once a year or 10 times a year, you go and hang out with that one person. They always make you smile. They always encourage you. They always build you up. How many of you have a person like that in your life? Love seeing that for the rest of you. Um, Come to the Embrace the Mission class uh, next Sunday so you can meet some friends. Um, When we have those kinds of people in our life, we can't wait to spend time with them. As a matter of fact, if they call and text and say, hey, what are you doing tonight? How are you going to respond? Oh, I'm in. Whatever it is, I'm in. Because spending time with you builds me up. Your influence on my life encourages me tremendously. And I believe that this response that Abraham gets from the sons of Heth, these men who have been around Abraham now for several years, Abraham has had influence on their life, which is why they respond this way. Um, If you've been with us through Genesis, when it came to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember the angels, God sends them into Sodom for the purpose of pulling out Lot and his family. And the angels even ask Lot, do you have friends or family that you can get out of here? Get them out now. And who listens to Lot? Nobody. No one listens to him. Even his own sons-in-law think that he's joking. Why? Why couldn't he get anybody to leave Sodom and Gomorrah? Because he had no what? He had no influence. He didn't live in the wisdom of God's ways. He didn't display the character of Christ. And so when it came time to a man to talk about something serious, to try to influence people, he had no influence. But Abraham, Abraham was growing in influence. In Genesis chapter 21, you'll remember the very same man that he messed over, Abimelech, comes to Abram a chapter later, and he goes, Abram, I recognize that the hand of God is with you on all that you do. Therefore, let's make a treaty together. I want to be friends with you. I want to be on your team. Why did Abimelech want that? What did he see in Abraham? He saw God's favor. He saw God's character. He saw the wisdom of God's ways. He saw God's blessing upon Abraham's life. And I want to encourage us today, obey God's word to attract and influence others to God. Obey God's word to attract and influence others to God. Now, it's easy for us to be a pessimist about this and go, hey, that is not the way of the world. When we live according to God's ways, people go the opposite direction. In large part, that may be true. But on an individual basis, when you are in relationship with others, 
When you are kind and generous to your neighbors, when you are gracious and forgiving to your family members when they step on your toes or sometimes on your head, when you do not keep a record of wrongs or score against your spouse, you will have influence over others so that when you speak or when you move, whether it be in the workplace or in your personal lives, it attracts and influences others specifically to God. And I believe wholeheartedly this is why these Hittites, the sons of Heth, respond to Abraham this way, because Abraham has influence. His character has displayed the truth of who God is. Verse 7. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at what? The full price as property for a burial place among you. Abraham again takes this humble posture. Um, he doesn't just go, sweet, free, I'm in. I'll, uh, I'll take that one. Oh, and while I'm at it, I'll also take those two if you don't mind, because I'm going to have more family. It's not what Abraham does. He goes back and he bows himself. He humbles his posture. And he says, hey, thank you so much. And if I have gained your favor, if I have influence in your life, would you please talk to this leader of the city for me? His name is Ephron. And there's a specific cave at the end of his field, which I would like to bury my wife in. And Abraham makes sure to put in there that he will pay full price for the field. We're going to talk about why it's important that Abraham is doing this in just a little bit. But I want to encourage you. Notice how Abraham is not just jumping at the first opportunity that's given to him. He's a man of integrity and he's a man of influence. And remember that influence, which he has now is not to promote himself. That influence that he has is to promote who to promote God. So if he takes this free piece of land now, it may be determined for the future by the sons of Heth that, Hey, that Abraham guy, what's he going to be remembered for? The freebie that he took from us, the favor that we did for him. And I have no doubt that even in Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham brings his troops and rescues, rescues Lot and the other, men, uh, other women and children from the city, the king of Sodom goes, hey, Abraham, take all the spoils of war. Take all the goods. Take all the money. Just give us our women and children back. And do you remember what Abraham's response is? It shall not be. Abraham will take nothing from your hand, lest you say you made Abraham rich. For it is the Lord who provides all that I need. And Abraham doesn't take anything from that battle. I have no doubt that Abraham is thinking along the same lines. His desire is to use his influence not to build himself up. Not to get things for him, but instead his influence is to point people to God and to display his character. Does that make sense? And many of us oftentimes 
because of a position or because of power or because of influence in our life, we are given opportunities to take advantage of others or to selfishly make choices. And I want to bring some controversial things into this topic. Um, how many of you remember the PPP loans during COVID? Um, amazing that we have a government that wants to think about small businesses, keeping employees on the payroll. And hey, there's no question, during COVID, things were difficult. But the amount of fraud that occurred with PPP loans was incredible. And not only businesses, but also some churches were taking PPP loans that did not need them. That simply because it was offered and free, they took advantage to line their own pockets or to build themselves up. And I would encourage you to consider this principle when we think of things like that. Obey God's word to attract and influence others. Not simply just taking something because it's free, but thinking of the bigger picture. Think of right now this uh, the student loan forgiveness that's coming out. Sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> For those of you who are paying your taxes, you're like, no, it does not sound great. Um, you're right, it's not. Not only on a practical level, a Forbes magazine came out with an article in June 2022 that listed five reasons why this would be bad. And these are just practical things. Number one, about 45 million Americans currently owe student loan debt. 22 million of those applied in the first week for student loan forgiveness, by the way. The first week that it was available. But here's the problem. What about the people who've paid off their student loans? Or what about the people who don't have loans, period? Who is paying for the student loan forgiveness? There is a cost. There is a bigger picture. Forbes also listed a couple of other reasons. Uh, number one... It doesn't help with inflation, which is a big deal. It increases inflation. It doesn't address the issue. And the heart of this issue is not the loan problem. It's how much college what? How much it costs. That is the root of the issue that is not being addressed. And those are just practical matters. But I want to encourage you to consider something else. The Bible talks about how we are to manage debt, about how we are to pay back what we have borrowed. In Psalm 37, verse 21, it says, The wicked borrows and what? Does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. I want to encourage us, church family, think deeply about the things that we participate in, that we take for free. Is it only to benefit ourselves? But what about the bigger picture? What about the higher cost? Listen, I get it. When you can have $30,000 of debt turn into $10,000 of debt, I mean, personally, that sounds amazing. I don't think anybody would argue with you. But it comes at a cost. And if you borrowed money, what should you do? You should pay it back. Uh, the Pharisees try to trap Jesus in this. They're talking to him about taxes. And uh, they say, teacher, should we pay our taxes to Rome? And here's the reason why they were saying that. Was Rome good to the Jews? No way. They were oppressive. There were all sorts of things that I'm sure their tax money was going to that they didn't like. 
And they're trying to trap Jesus because if he says no, they can get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. And if he says yes, then the Jewish people are going to be angry at him. And Jesus in all his brilliance says this in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one: Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And I would propose to you today that using our influence in all matters of life, including debt that we have occurred or that we need to pay back, it is for the importance of pointing people to God. We are to be good stewards of these things. And yes, I think the interest rates on student loans are out of control. But if we borrow money, what should we do? We should pay it back. Free does not always mean better. It can promote selfishness and individualism rather than accountability and thinking of, other, of others above ourselves. May we not seek to simply just gain what we can from this world. But as Abraham is going to display, may we use our worldly resources to invest in eternal relationships. May we use our worldly resources to invest in eternal relationships. Um, in uh, Luke chapter 16, there's an amazing parable that Jesus gives about the unjust steward. How many of you are familiar with this parable? It's kind of a, maybe a little more on the outskirts. Um, here's what happens. A master gets word that his servant or his steward is not managing the finances and his resources well. And so he calls that steward to account and goes, you can no longer be steward. I'm calling you into my office later today. I want to know what you've been doing with my money. And the steward goes, oh, shoot, I'm in trouble. I've been stewarding things well. What do I do? And here's what he does. He calls the first person that owes his master 100 jars of oil and goes, quick, write it out. You only owe him 50. Then he calls the next guy who, owns, who owes 100 bushels of wheat and goes, hey, you only owe 80. And so on and so forth he goes. What is he doing? He's being shrewd. Uh, that's a good biblical word. Now can we put it into context? He's using his worldly resources to do what? To find favor. So that when he gets ousted out of his job and he doesn't have a place to live, what has he done? He has built some friendships, hasn't he? He can call upon some favors. And it's so interesting that Jesus uses this parable because what is Jesus not condoning? He's not condoning the dishonesty of this steward, obviously. But he does say that the sons of this world are more wise with their resources than the sons of God. You can be shrewd in business, but not for the purpose of just getting favors from other people. But instead, look at Luke chapter 16, verse 9. This is in the New Living Translation. Here's what Jesus teaches. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and to make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, meaning when you're dead, they will welcome you to an eternal home. In other words, May we use our influence and our resources to point people where? To Jesus. So that when we die, who will be waiting for us? The people that we had influence over that went, man, 
your life just screamed Jesus. And I'm here because you helped me. Because you built me up. Because you took your time or you invested your finances or you took the giftings that you have and you poured it into me for the purpose of introducing me to Jesus Christ. This is why Abraham is so hesitant and doesn't want to take things for free. Because he has a greater influence to have than just finding a cave for his wife. He's pointing the sons of Heth to God. Verse 10. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth. All who entered at the gate of his city saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Uh, Ephron, the one who Abraham wants the cave from, reiterates what? It's free. Listen, for you, special deal. For free. Take it. Verse 12. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. This is now the third time he's done this. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is only worth 250 grand. What is that between friends? So bury your dead. Says it's 400 shekels. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Do you see what's going on here? In ancient Middle East customs, uh, even still today, in a lot of uh, Jewish bargaining, uh, people will go, no, 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 it's okay. Just take it. And it's customary of the other person to do what? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not going to take it. What's the price? And back and forth they go until a price is listed. And usually the first price that's offered is what? Incredibly high. Incredibly high. And it's so interesting to me that Ephron's like, no, it's for free. No, it's for free. Well, it's actually 400 shekels of silver if you want to pay it. Now Abraham has a decision to make. How many of you, when you go to your garage sales, you're like, but you said it was going to be for free. How many of you still go to garage sales? <laughs> Abraham knows this custom. He also wants to have a good influence. So verse 16. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of his city. In other words, Abraham buys the first piece of the promised land for 400 shekels of silver. For what purpose? To bury his wife. Does that seem like a far cry of the promise that God has offered him? In your own life, does it ever seem like, God, I don't really feel like you're that near. I don't really feel like you're providing me. I don't really feel. Anybody ever feel that way? 
Good thing our faith is not the same as our feelings. The truth of God's word supersedes even how we feel. That doesn't make our feelings invalid, but it does give us a foundation to move forward in. Because if it's our emotions and our feelings that control our life, we are in a world of trouble, aren't we? But it's Abraham's faith that simply allows him to be deeded this cave of Machpelah. Verse 18, or excuse me, verse 19. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah and his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. I want to finish with this. Um, Hopefully this is encouraging and practical and helpful, but there's at least four biblical business principles that we can learn from this interaction between Abraham and Ephron. Four biblical business principles. And I believe that these apply at the smallest levels of business and at the high levels of even Fortune 500 companies had they been run by Christian men and women. The first, be humble in character. Be humble in character. No matter what position or influence that you hold, no matter if you're the top of the food chain or if you're just a, a, an employee making widgets, be humble in character. This points people to God. The moment we start coming and puffing our chest out, saying, look at who I am, look how much power I have, you're lucky that I'm even standing in your office, perhaps we get things done. But does it point to God or does it point to ourselves? It'll always point to ourselves. Be humble in character. The second thing is put all terms in writing. Amen. Be wise. Be wise. Put all terms in writing. What I love is, yes, it doesn't say in writing other than it does say Abraham has deeded these things, but it says that in the presence of all the sons of Heth, Abraham doesn't try to do a backdoor deal. He doesn't go in the dark to try to do something shady behind the scenes. He goes during the daytime to the leaders of the city, into their city council office, and goes, I'm Abraham, I'm a foreigner and a visitor, and I would like to buy a piece of land to bury my wife. Put all terms in writing. Be wise with your business dealings, even if it's with friends. Which gets us to our third point. Be generous. Be generous. You bear the name of Christ Jesus. Oh, it drives me nuts when I hear that people go out to eat and for a tip, they leave those million dollar bills with the gospel printed on it. What a terrible witness. Don't do that, please. Unless you leave like a $50 tip and then you add that to it. That's fine. But notice Abraham, he's given a high price. Hey, what's the big deal? 400 shekels of silver. And what does Abraham do? Hey, I'll pay that. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong to bargain, but how we bargain matters. And if we are undervaluing people in order to build ourselves up, we need to check our hearts. But notice that Abraham has his eyes and mind set on bigger things, doesn't he? 400 shekels of silver. You're right. What is that compared to the eternal inheritance of my God? compared to the fact that my wife just died and I'm grieving and mourning. There are way more important things in life than a couple of bucks here or a couple of bucks there. 
The last one that I would encourage you with is that in business, you are a witness of God. Just like in politics, just like in relationships, in business, God wants to be a part of every aspect of our life. And I can't tell you how many times people like Jamel Ryan from our church come to me and go, I was working at Sprouts in the vitamin section. I had this conversation with this lady about her health and she leads them to Jesus. Why? Because God is involved in every aspect of her life, including talking about vitamins with people in Sprouts. And this is business. It doesn't mean you proselytize everywhere you go, but you make sure that your character is in line with God's character. So that when someone goes, hey, the way you do business is not the way that I do business or not the way others do business with me. Why do you do it this way? Now the door has been opened to what? An opportunity to witness to someone in the name of Jesus Christ. Abraham buries his wife. A sad day. A sorrowful opportunity place of heartache, but also not one without hope. Church family, be hopeful. You don't have to rejoice in the actual suffering that you endure now, but we can rejoice that that suffering points us to something far greater, the covenant and the promise that God has called us to an eternal life and a city with eternal foundations. Let's pray and we'll continue to worship. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is true and right and ministers to us right where we are. Lord, it's your desire to speak into our lives, to ensure that we live with character, both in the hard times of sorrow or in the business dealings of man and this earth, all for the purpose of pointing people to you. So, Lord, I pray for every person here, that they would use their influence not to grow their own empires or to build themselves up, but that they would use their influence to point others to Christ, to encourage people that not all of the world is dark. Not all of the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Lord, your light continues to penetrate the darkness and there are more souls to be saved. So, Lord, would you give us your character as we continue to study your word to point others to you? In Jesus' name, and everybody said, would you stand with me as we close out in song? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.